postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault that no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Happy Monday, everyone. It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. I'm excited to be here, as always, because we are diving into episode four of Understanding the Secular Mind. Now, in this Podinar series so far, I have been unpacking secular thought from a much more, or at least aiming to anyways, from a much more uh, profound perspective than what we usually give secular thought credit for. And, and my real hope is that you would catch a glimpse or a taste of what it means to inhabit this world with a secular mindset or a secular worldview. Um, even though I think kind of what I'm trying to get across is that there really isn't such a thing as a worldview for emerging secular culture. But anyways, um, I just I really want each of us to to sort of inhabit and inhale the 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 milieu, the environment, right, of uh, of a secular culture because when we get to taste their angst, then we know exactly what it is we're supposed to be saying to them or how we're supposed to frame our message and our invitation and and our mission to be effective in in reaching this culture. And so up to this point, really the main thing that we've explored is the concept of absurdity, right? The concept of absurdity. And just to do a little bit of a recap, absurdity is an experience that has been codified by a lot of the existential philosophers. And I've focused mostly on Albert Camus, but obviously he's not the only one. Uh, but this whole concept of absurdity it kind of has become one of the tenets of, of existentialism. Um, and even though in many ways, like postmodernity, existentialism is hard to define. It, it doesn't really have set tenets, I suppose. Um, they ebb and they flow. But absurdity is one of the common themes that you find among many existentialists. And it's this idea, there's a tension, right? Is this codification of the tension between man's search for meaning, to borrow from, from Viktor Frankl, and the universe mocking that search for meaning with the declaration that there's nothing and it's all vacuous and empty. And so as a human being, right, going back to Camus' um, myth of Sisyphus, as, 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 a, as a conscious being who is doomed to this vanity, to this, to this life that is essentially vanity, how do you find meaning? You know, you, you have to take responsibility, essentially, is where the existentialist um, really lands. Like, responsibility is a very deep, central aspect of most as existential thought. Like, you have to take responsibility and mine from within yourself is one perspective. Mine 
uh, meaning and purpose and, and sort of craft a valuable and consequential life out of the nothingness, right? So it's it's almost like, you know, creation ex nihilo, but uh, rather than creating matter, you are creating you are creating meaning and and purpose and direction. And so this tension then lies at the foundation of secular thinking. Uh, this tension lies at the foundation of the secular experience. But the thing is that as a secular person, you are quite unlikely, unless you're sort of academic um, and you like love philosophy and things like that, it's unlikely that the vast majority of your secular friends would express their experience as a secular person in the language that I've just used, right? I'm using the language of the philosophers who have attempted to codify the experience of people. But it's quite likely that they've never heard of terms like existentialism and absurdity and, and all this stuff, right? They are not necessarily navigating life with that particular language, okay? So that's an important point to note. Some of them might be, that's very true. I know quite a few. But others are just normal human beings navigating life, trying to make sense of it, and really in this pursuit of meaning and purpose. Uh, and they don't necessarily have fancy philosophical language to codify that. They're just, it's just experiential. They're just living. They're just waking up in the morning and acting these, these categories out without necessarily thinking through them. And, and the way in which um, a lot of secular people act these categories out, it, it's, it's kind of the way people have always acted their, their angst out. It's the way we've always acted out our, our anxieties and, and our, um, our fears and our, our self-centeredness. It's basically through these navigations that I explored in the previous episode of um, amusement, duties, and transcendence. The difference being that in the secular mind, uh, amusement, duties, and transcendence, and I think, I guess this, this might not make any sense if I say it now, it'll, it'll probably make more sense a few more episodes in, but in, in the, the pre-modern mind, there was a sense that even though you were not on the right path, you could always find the right path right? Like there was a sense in which I pursue amusement to find the right path, or I pursue duties to find the right path, or I pursue transcendence to find the right path, or, or I blend all of them in the pursuit of the right path. Whereas because of the impact of post-modernity, people navigate the absurdity of life now, but they're not expecting to find a right path, right? Or the right path. They're simply expecting to, to find a path that kind of works for them. And there is zero inkling that what they discover will be a meta-truth or a meta-reality or, or a meta-theme that others can, can equally tap into, right? And so there's this sense in which, hey, I pursue meaning through whether it be amusement or duties or transcendence, but the meaning that I am pursuing or the, the, the path that I am taking toward it is not really a path. Um, it's, it's not, yeah. So it's hard to fully unpack that now because I haven't gone through some of the other things that we're about to get through. But I think 
I think you can kind of grasp what I'm getting at there, though. There's a sense in which the navigations are um, random, right? They're they're swirls rather than rather than lines, um, and so generally, what tends to happen then is, and we're we're gonna dig into this uh, way more in the coming episodes because. I, I still have I mentioned this in the last episode and I'll mention it again, but I'm going to dig into it more in the future. Um, duties, uh, amusement duties and transcendence is, is a sort of a, a surface or banal way of understanding how secular people interact with reality um, as they contend with the absurdity of life. And it is banal, and I will admit that, but it's purposefully banal because we as Christians who have not inhabited the complexity of what it means to be a secular person, um, we, if, if, if I was to try and give that complexity to you on a podcast episode, you would just be totally lost, right? So I have to kind of oversimplify things and, and use these categorizations that are kind of static and, and not 100% real, because what these categorizations do is they help simplify the conversation, they help codify it, they help give us some sort of a foundation that we can work off of. But the last thing that I want you to do is take these categorizations and use them to create a cartoon version of what a secular person is in your mind. Because even secular people who are pursuing meaning through amusement um, or are pursuing meaning through duties or are pursuing meanings through transcendence even those people are awfully and beautifully complex, right? So let's not narrow people down to a singularity because there's no such thing. That's kind of my warning. And um, But with that, with that said, I want to build on this now. And that's what this episode is all about. I want to I wanna build on this tension of what it means to inhabit the world through a secular perspective as best as I understand it, right? Because I've never been a secular person. So I, even I'm speaking from the outside here. I'm definitely not on the inside. Um, but I want to I try and capture that tension and that angst a little bit more. And then in the next episode, I want to start digging into uh, some really foundational practical concepts that we as Adventists need to embrace if we want to have a meaningful interaction with the secular world around us. And believe you me, so much has to change, all right? So much has to change. And I'm not just talking about, hey, we need to change the music at church because contemporary people don't like hymns. Like when I hear those types of comments, I just roll my eyes because it's not that they're not true. Like I'm a contemporary guy, I'm, you know, I like hymns, but eh, you know, they're not my favorite thing. Um, but the point is, it's so much deeper than that, right? It's so much deeper than that. And I hear pastors talk about it all the time, oh, let's, let's do round table church because that's what people like today. And I'm like, okay, if you want to do round table church, then I mean, so what? Go for it. <laughs> but man, it's so much deeper than that, you know? And so I really want us to capture the depth of existential secular thought because I think it can give us an appreciation for the complexity of the minds that we're contending with. And, and maybe that'll help us move beyond these really superficial adaptations that we bring to the church experience, hoping it has some sort of missiological success when those superficial adaptations are not really where, where the magic happens, if I can put it that way. 
Okay, so let's dig in a little bit deeper. We've talked about the absurdity of life. We've talked about the navigations that people often use to, to navigate that absurdity because that absurdity is at the core of their human existence, right? It is what has conditioned them. It is what has um, codified their colors, their flavors, their rhythms, right? Everything has been sort of um, transmuted or, or, or translated through these absurd lenses that they're wearing as they look at themselves and at the world around them. And so what tends to happen then um, is that most people in the culture will not be open to anything spiritual, at least in a, in a typical Christian sense, unless the mode of navigation collapses, right? When the mode of navigation collapses, that's where you begin to get people asking questions. Like I had a lady message me some years ago, never been to church a day in her life, but she had a friend that went to church. She'd never been to church a day in her entire life. She was in her 30s. She'd never thought about church, um, never had any of those questions. And one morning she woke up and she just had this thought that she couldn't get rid of. And the thought was, how could someone as conscious as I am die and it's literally over? Like no more consciousness, no more existence, no more nothing. And it's like, how? Like I'm so alive and I'm so aware and I'm so here and then all of a sudden I'm not? And so this then led her into this stage of existential anxiety where she wanted to figure out her existence and her permanence or the lack thereof. And so we started studying the Bible together. But here's the thing, for her up to this point, she had, you know, she was in her 30s already. She had been navigating life for many years and she was perfectly happy with the way in which she was navigating life. And it wasn't until her system of navigation began to sort of collapse that she began to look elsewhere. And so this is where we can touch a little bit more on um, Kierkegaard's stages of, uh, of life's way or stages on life's way, where he taught, we presents a very similar concept to this idea of um, amusement duties and transcendence. He, he frames it differently or uses different language. But for Kierkegaard, you go through this aesthetic stage of life, which is kind of where he, you know, the amusement, I suppose, is sort of parallel to the aesthetic stage of life. And, and, but then you move beyond that because eventually that, that navigation, that model doesn't work anymore. And so you, you get into the, you get into your responsibilities, right? And, and that became, becomes the means through which you begin to mine meaning from existence is through your responsibilities. But then that's not satisfying. And so ultimately, Kierkegaard says every human being has to arrive at the religious stage, um, uh, the religious stage along life's way. And he didn't define religion the way most of us typically would define religion. He wasn't necessarily, he wasn't talking about um, standardized, uh, liturgized, uh, traditional Christian religion. In fact, Kierkegaard was extremely critical of Christendom. And he referred to it as a fashionable tradition, right? He, he could not stand the way in which Christianity had been uh, reduced to mere forms. He, he really couldn't stand that. But beside the point, the, the point is, this is where you begin to see the system of navigation collapsing. And so the person moves from one system to the next. And they move from, you know, from, from amusement into duties, 
because the amusement began to sort of let them down. And, and they move from duties into transcendence because eventually uh, duties let them down. And so <clears throat> this is kind of like, um, I, I think the musical artist Famba, he's got this song where he says, I've been searching for salvation in a bottle, but I ain't found nothing there but misery. Now, what is, what is Famba essentially saying? He's essentially saying that he's been navigating life through amusement, but the amusement isn't working. The amusement has failed. And so people generally then move into, into duties here. And this is where they begin to focus on uh, success and mindset and positivity. And it's really interesting because my wife is a psychology student. And by the way, you guys are going to hear from her soon because we're going to do a whole season together on psychology and missiology. That's going to be a lot of fun. But um, beside the point again, um, she was talking to me about some of the classes that she's taking on psychotherapy where, where one of the themes that they've been discussing is how when it comes to this whole idea, you know, the sort of the Tony Robbins, you know, your best life now, mindset, success, positivity, energy, that whole world, when you reach the apex of that world, most people find themselves awfully dissatisfied because they're like, okay, what's next? So I've achieved authenticity. So I've achieved success. So, you know, I've achieved my dreams and my vision board and it's it's all done and now what and this is where in the world of psychology what they say this the human the human psyche is pursuing is what they refer to as the transpersonal experience this is where the human being finally reaches the point where they're like you know what whatever i'm looking for it's not in the personal experience it transcends the personal experience. And so this then leads someone into the transcendent stage of life. And this is where people begin to, you know, kind of get into yoga and um, not yoga, the stretches, but the, the deep, deep, deeper stuff and, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, really pursuing a transpersonal experience, something numinous, right? Something divine that can kind of help them escape the now. And religions like Hinduism and Buddhism are, are, are very appealing in this stage. Or, and, and generally, um, their sort of um, outflows of Hinduism and Buddhism like New Age and, and even a lot of different pagan, um, pagan thoughts because there's a sense in which you can manufacture your own numinous experience. You can, you can be in charge. You can be in complete control of the transpersonal journey by, by essentially saying, well, hey, look, I want to step out into the unknown. I want to find something beyond myself, um, but I can still have a, a, a general sense of control with what that's going to look like. And, and so this, these are very appealing because obviously when you look at religions like Christianity and the oppression that it has historically rendered on society, that's the last place people want to go. And we're going to dig into that because that's a huge, huge, huge thing to understand. But the systems collapse, right? The systems collapse. And, and the, the challenge is, though, that even, even the transcendent experience can leave people really, really broken and disillusioned and, and, and what happens when this transcendent experience collapses is that the person will find that for all their philosophy and religion, the suffering of life still overwhelms them. And, and they, can't, they can't escape its 
agony. And and I think in some ways, probably not in every way, but in some ways, this is what's given um, birth to what jean Francois Lyotard described as the postmodern incredulity toward meta-narratives. Because this is essentially the spiritual, once you tap into the spiritual, there's a sense in which you're touching on meta-themes and meta-truths and meta-experiences. And, and, and that comes along with meta-narratives, which is the idea that human history or human experience can be strung together by this deep, transcendent, cohesive story, which is a big no-no in postmodernism. But anyways, so again, when these things collapse, these, this is the juncture, right? This is where you get to this place that I refer to as the juncture. And, and, and when you get to the juncture, uh, you, you essentially begin to question and you begin to become open to exploring God. But here's the thing. I'm going to totally switch gears here now, and I really, really want you to capture this. And it might even feel like in some ways I'm rehashing some of the content from last week's episode, and I am, and I'm doing it purposefully because I really want this to sink in, all right? Just because a person's mode of navigation has collapsed and they've become open to seeking God does not mean that they are open to the language of traditional Adventism. All right? Now, this, I hear this all the time. Oh, you know, people, when, they, when they're ready, they'll come and, you know, uh, they, they'll seek God. And, oh, yeah, the people who didn't stick around at the evangelistic series, they just weren't ready. Or the Holy Spirit hasn't touched them yet. Or, you know, we just have to wait for God to do His work. And I agree with that 100%. Like, the Holy Spirit is, is doing this work way before any of us are on the scene. However, we have to understand that just because a person's mode of navigation has collapsed does not mean that they're magically prepared to consume traditional Adventist orthodoxy, all right? And, and this is because the mind sown in absurdity speaks a completely different language to the mind sown in faith, all right? Completely different language. So we can't assume that once a person becomes open to God or embraces the reality of God's existence, that this somehow means that they're, they're now like, oh yeah, talk to me about the mark of the beast and the state of the dead and, you know, and, and, and the Adventist remnant and, and present truth. Like, no, they're, they're not ready to consume that. And it, actually, the opposite is true. In my experience with most secular people whose modes of navigation are on the process of, of, of being deconstructed, what they're doing is they're kind of seeking and they're stepping out and they're dipping their toes in the water and, and they'll, they'll come to church or they'll make contact and they'll kind of look around and they'll touch a little bit here and poke a little bit there. And if they are met, this is the experience I've seen, if they are met by fundamentalism, if they are met by simplistic ideas when they dip their toes in the water, if they are met by irrelevant concepts, frameworks, and language that they don't comprehend, they will retreat. All right? They will retreat. Now, that doesn't mean they're giving up on this God search. It just means they ain't going to do it at your church and they ain't going to do it with you. They're going to do it somewhere else, right? And so, and sadly, really, I guess <laughs> the, the real sad thing is that our traditional evangelistic approach and the, the way in which most of our traditional churches are, are categorized and, 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 and the cultural expressions of most of our traditional Adventist churches, we actually fuel this repulsive experience for the secular seeker. So in order to begin drafting a new and more effective approach, it's way deeper 
Let me say this again. It's way deeper than throwing on a contemporary Christian band with round tables, guys. It's so much deeper than that. We need to rethink our entire paradigm, our entire paradigm. And I, I would actually argue that we need to reframe our entire paradigm beginning at the level of truth. What do we mean by truth? I would actually start all the way back there and then reframe that to be more meaningful in secular mission. And I think from there, you can then actually begin to look at all of our fundamental doctrines, right? All of our fundamental beliefs. And you can, with, with this reframing of the concept of truth, you, begin, you can begin to reframe each of those doctrines. You're not taking anything away from them. You're not deleting anything. You're simply contextualizing them to the language and the experience of the mind sown in absurdity. So I would begin at the level of truth. And... Here is where things start to get <laughs> really, really, really interesting. So let me begin like this. One of the underlying presuppositions in Adventist evangelism is that we possess the truth. And this truth that we possess, we believe it's something every soul needs to encounter in order to experience salvation. Now, I, I don't disagree with this. I think it's logical. I think it's biblical. But where we get into trouble is that we consistently assume that the culture views truth the same way we do, right? In other words, we, we think that our ideas about truth or at least the basic concepts that guide those ideas about truth are universally shared. But it's actually way more complicated than that. So when we're talking about truth, one of the main things that we need to understand is that human beings speak two different languages. All right? Two different languages. The first and the one we're probably most familiar with is conceptual language. So these are the words that we use, the colloquialisms, the terminology, um, the, the noises that we make to express the concepts that we're trying to get across, right? This is conceptual language. But there is a deeper language that human beings speak, and, and this is the language of being, right? Or soul language. And this second language that human beings speak is the language of our heart. And it revolves more around values and emotions than propositional ideas. So for example, let me give you an example. I can ask uh, most of you listening to this podcast who are married, why do you love your partner? And if I sat down with each of you and just kept annoying you with that question, why do you love your partner? Oh, I... I love him because he's so kind. Okay, but, but why? Oh, I love her because, you know, she's just uh, such, a, such an encouraging person. Okay, but why? And I just keep digging and digging and digging. Eventually, you're going to get extremely frustrated and you're going to say, I don't know, man. I just do. I just do. I can't explain it. I can't put it into language that is adequate enough to express it. I just know that I do. So what you've just encountered 
is that your conceptual language is not capable of fully communicating the language of your being, what's happening inside of you, right? So a lot of times the really deep things that happen that are taking place within us, they are they are ineffable, right? They, they can't really be expressed or fully captured in conceptual language. And so there's a sense of frustration. It's like, I don't know why I love my wife. I just do. Leave me alone. You know? <laughs> because there's something really deep in there that's ineffable. Like you can't really put it into conceptual language. Now, the language of being is a lot deeper. And, and, and this is what I'm talking about, right? It's, it, it, it can't always be captured in clauses or idioms. Sometimes you just can't. You just can't get it out. And so another example is you guys have all seen the pastor who tries to copy the words and the fashion of the youth in order to relate to them. And everyone's like, yeah, this dude's really phony. And, you know, he thinks he's cool and he thinks he's young, but, you know, he's like 40 years old and he's trying to be cool. And and, and most young people actually see this as a gimmick and it, it doesn't generally work. But most of us have seen that one old guy who for all intents and purposes is anything but cool, right? He's just not cool at all, but yet the young people love him. Or that old lady at church that the youth just absolutely adore. And, and, and the old lady is not walking around with, you know, like, a, like baggy pants and a backwards cap, you know, like, <laughs> I just went back into the 80s there. But, you know, like, it's, She's just she's just an old lady like she's not cool but for some reason like young people just absolutely love her. Now why? Why is that? Why do they look at the youth pastor who's trying to be all hip and cool as as phony but this old person they love him. Like what's the difference? And in many ways the difference is that the old woman or the old man that I'm talking about they have mastered the art of speaking to the youth at the level of being instead of trying to win them over at the surface level of conceptual language. And so, so I can sit there and talk to the youth using all their slang and all their terminology and you know, all their swag and, 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 and try and connect with them that way. But that's a surface level of language. But if I actually learn what's going on inside their hearts and I live in a way that speaks meaningfully to the things that they're contending with on a deeper level, on the level that can't be conceptualized in slang and swag, I will actually have a much higher likelihood of gaining their respect, right? And, and, and there's more authenticity in that. There's more real, raw beauty in that expression than in just trying to copy someone's style at the surface level. So it's, it's important to recognize these two levels of language in order to communicate meaningfully with the culture. And let's bring this back to the concept of truth, right? Because that's what I'm discussing right now. For the typical Adventist, truth or the concept of truth has a conceptual approach. But it also has a soul language or a, a language of being about it. So at the conceptual level, for most of us Seventh-day Adventists, truth is defined very simply. 
that which is true is true. It stands in contrast to that which is false. It's black and white, right and wrong, up and down. Truth is factual. Truth is self-evident. Truth is absolute. And we take that concept of truth and we apply it to the Sabbath. We apply it to the state of the dead. We apply it to end time events. And it's very black and white, up and down, factual, evident, absolute. And then at the level of soul or at the level of being, truth is more than just this academic concept that I just defined, right? If you're sitting here and you're listening to this episode and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you know that truth to you is way more than just an academic concept. Truth for you is an enthusiastic idea, right? It's a treasure worth pursuing. When you know truth, you taste freedom from the oppression of lies, right? So that's what truth is to you. And I haven't even fully captured it because what truth is to you at the level of being can't really be expressed perfectly in conceptual language. But I think I've approximated it to some degree. Truth is beautiful. Truth is liberating. Truth is enthusiastic. Truth brings hope and, and joy with it. And ah, we, we love truth, right? And so there's this conceptual level where we have these, you know, black and white, up and down, left and right. But at the level of being, truth for us is a fundamentally enthusiastic idea. And here's the point, guys. Here's the point. The culture today does not have the same relationship to truth that I've just described you and I having. They don't have that same relationship at the conceptual level, and they definitely don't have it at the level of being. Now, conceptually speaking, if we're going to use the conceptual language here for a moment, in the culture today, that which is true cannot be contrasted with that which is false. Because both can be true and false at the same time, right? British playwright Harold Pinter put it this way. There are no hard distinctions between what is real and what is unreal, nor between what is true and what is false. A thing is not necessarily either true or false. It can be both true and false. This is sort of the both and experience or the both and concept that you find in, in a lot of Eastern philosophy, right? It's, it's become deeply embedded in Western secular emerging thought. It's this idea like there's no such thing as an absolute truth, right? Truth is not absolute. And so as I pursue or as I engineer a meaningful life, I am engineering a meaningful life for me but not necessarily for you. And if you have engineered a meaningful life through Jesus, if you have engineered a meaningful life through the Sabbath, through the state of the dead, through vegetarianism, through, through these end time event scenarios, if you have managed to engineer purpose and significance through that, good for you. That does not mean in any way, shape or form that that is for me. And if you push it, as though it's meant to be for everyone, not only do I reject it more because it makes me uncomfortable that you're pushing it, but the very truth that you're pushing now becomes not so much your story of freedom, but your path toward the oppression of others. I hope you caught that. I hope you caught that because I really want us to 
capture the taste, the difference, guys, the gargantuan difference, okay? So this is at the conceptual level, right? At the conceptual level, when people express in language their approach to truth, nine times out of 10, in emerging secular culture today, there's a relativism that goes about it. Because for the secular mind, truth, if there even is such a thing, it's more gray than black and white. And it's different shades of gray at that, right? It's not a simple right and wrong because context changes and, and, and relationships change. And what is right for you may very well be wrong for me. And, and we can make this philosophical distinction between facts, right? What, what's a fact? Well, a fact is something that we can affirm as a shared perspective, you know, like the White Houses in Washington, we, we all share that perspective, so that's a fact. But truth cannot be affirmed as a shared perspective because it's subjective, right? Like Jesus is the Savior. Well, that's, that's not a truth that we can affirm as a shared perspective. So it's a relative truth. And so the concept of truth in the culture, whatever it might be, it's not self-evident and it's definitely not absolute. To know truth is to know your truth and to taste your freedom from your lies. But your truth and your freedom are for you, meaning that if you apply them to me, the same truth that has liberated you may in fact result in oppression for me. Now, that last line, I just want to explore that just a little bit more because I think it reveals that there is more to the culture's relationship with truth than the basic conceptual relativism we often boil down to. All right, I want to get into the level of being here now because for the culture, truth is not simply a non-thing. I want you to listen to me, listen to me. Truth is not simply a non-thing in the cultural consciousness today. Truth, the very concept of truth, is a deplorable thing. You say, Marcus, how can you say that? What do you mean by that? Well, here's the thing. Absolute truth lies. I'm speaking, I'm speaking from the cultural perspective today. Absolute truth lies at the foundation of every injustice from racial oppression to sexual orientation and gender discrimination, right? Where do you get sexual orientation and gender discrimination? Where do you get racial oppression? Where, where do these things come from? They are always rooted in some claim of absolute truth. And that absolute truth might come from religion and it might even come from science. But there's always a claim for absolute truth and that absolute truth then becomes the justification for coercion and tyranny. And so the concept of absolute truth in the general cultural consciousness today is not merely a non-thing. It's a deplorable thing. It's a terrible thing. Absolute truth is the basic ingredient of tyranny. And for many others, the very concept of an absolute truth, even if you divorce it from injustice, it simply lacks finesse and beauty. And I want to capture this here now. And I want to slow down. Because this is where stuff gets intense. All right, we've talked about truth or the concept of absolute truth as being at the foundation of, of tyranny. I want to switch gears a little bit. Let's forget about tyranny. Let's forget about injustice. Because there's an even deeper reason why people today tend to reject the concept of absolute truth. And it's going to blow your mind as a Seventh-day Adventist. It's going to blow your mind as a Christian. You're going to be like, how could people possibly think this way? But they do. And here it is. The postmodern philosopher Jean Brogelard 
He summarized it perfectly, what I'm about to comment on. He summarized it like this. Postmodernity is said to be a culture of fragmentary sensations, eclectic nostalgia, disposable simulacra, and promiscuous superficiality, in which the traditionally valued qualities of depth, coherence, meaning, originality, and authenticity are evacuated or dissolved amid the random swirl of empty signals. Now, you and I look at that as Seventh-day Adventists, as Christians. You and I look at that and we think, how tragic, how sad, how depressing, how horrible. These people need Christ. Let's go. Let's give them Jesus. Let's go. Let's give them Jesus. That's what they need. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. But here's the thing that I really want you to understand. Not only is this perspective on truth or, or, or this, this dissolution of death coherence, meaning authenticity, not only is this dissolution seen as a positive thing because it takes away the basic ingredient of tyranny, it's seen as a beautiful thing. These random and empty signals, this experience of fragmentation, disposability, evacuation, and disillusion in the cultural consciousness. If you don't remember anything else I said in today's episode, do not forget this. In the cultural consciousness, this absurdity, this randomness, this no meaning, right? It's beautiful. It is something to be celebrated, not repaired. So it's imperative, right? It's imperative to understand as Adventists that this perspective of truth is not necessarily something the secular man finds troublesome. Right? We, we look at this and we're like, oh, who could possibly live like that? How terrible. Let's go give him Jesus. Wait a minute. Stop. Pause. Most secular people don't find this perspective of truth troubling. At the level of soul language, because that's what I'm poking at here, at the level of soul language, no truth, no truth at the level of soul language, no truth is liberating. There is no truth. There is no meta-narrative. There is no meta-theme. There is no grand story. And that is liberating. The French philosopher, uh, philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he summarized it best when he wrote this. And I quote, no meaning is relief, end quote. Now, how do we make sense of this? We make sense of this very simply. In the secular worldview, there is no absolute truth. There's no clear purpose for existence. And this, rather than being terrifying, is actually liberating. Rather than being a problem, it's actually a solution, right? Because there's no absolute truth. So there's no tyranny. There's no coercion. And this actually sets me free to determine my own truth and my own direction. And please, cut it out with the, oh, people do it because they just want to sin and have an excuse for it. Yeah, some people do. But that's a really caricatured version of what's happening in the cultural consciousness. Most people 
who want to be free to determine their own truth and their own direction are not looking for an excuse to load up on drugs and porn. They're pursuing much more meaningful and profound things than just an excuse for hedonistic living. And, and we do ourselves a disservice when we just assume that that's what everyone's after. What it means, what it means is this, what it means is I can live my life with total autonomy. There is no religious figure restraining my impulses. There is no ancient text controlling my ambitions or my inhibitions. There is no communal social conventions that forcefully mold my life. Best of all, there is no metaphysical judgment at which I am held to account for desiring to mold my own existence according to my own terms. Again, this is not a philosophical excuse for hedonism, uh, as some Christians would, would want to argue, but rather it's an invitation to live freely in the absurdity, to dance with the meaninglessness and emptiness of it all. And here's the, the bottom line, to allow my life to become a work of art that creates meaning and beauty in a world of my own design. And so what this absence of truth does is it offers the culture freedom from the oppression of the religious boundaries that have, as history clearly depicts, and as Adventists are clearly fond of talking about, especially when it comes to the book of Daniel, stunted man's progress in social evolution for far too long. And so while Adventists love truth, the secular mind detests it at best and is indifferent to it at worst because the absence of truth is not something to be lamented in the post-Everton world. It's something to be celebrated. At the level of soul language, truth to the Adventist is freedom, but to the secular mind, freedom is actually found in the absence of truth. And so this leads the mind of the culture toward what Gabriel Marcel described as to rejoice in his own annihilation. And for you and I, it's like, what? People actually think like that? Well, maybe not necessarily in those poetic terms. But yeah, people think like that. And when you come and you offer them religion, they don't see the enthusiasm that you see. They don't see the freedom that you see. They see oppression. They see coercion. They see tyranny. And so to summarize this, because I'm getting ready to, to wrap this up now, perspectives on truth, right? The conceptual understanding for a person of faith of truth is it's absolute, it's factual, it's self-evident. For a secular person, a conceptual understanding of truth is that it is relative. Um, there is a distinctions between what is a fact and what is a, a truth. And truth, whatever it is, is not self-evident. And at the level of being, for a person of faith, truth is freedom. For a person who is secular, truth is oppression. So with this divergence in understanding of what constitutes truth, it's clear that the church is not only contending with its lack of relevance in an absurd world, but it's also up against this cathartic suspicion, loathing, and indifference toward truth. 
And what happens when we don't recognize this is that when we go out into the culture to share our truth, the end result is collision, right? We're not, it's not harmony. It's not beauty. It's not, it's not, uh, um, you know, transformation. It's not metamorphosis. No, it's collision because along comes the Adventist with the truth, assuming everyone around him shares his enthusiastic appreciation for truth, but they don't. And so as you proclaim the truth, rather than reaching the hearts of secular listeners, what you say collides violently with the impregnable wall of incredulity that protects them from the very thing they deem to be oppressive. And understanding this challenge must lead us to ask, how can we approach the culture with the truth? How do we do it? Well, we're going to have to find out next time, or at least poke at it next time, because I'm done for today. <laughs> um, I hope that you guys got something meaningful and insightful for that. And we're going to go a little bit further in the next episode and explore what it looks like to approach the culture with the truth in a way that is winsome, in a way that inspires relationship rather than collision. All right, guys, I'm going to stop there. Uh, I think that's a lot to think about. So yeah, I'll stop there and um, catch you guys next week. If you are looking for something really cool to read, the book, The Death and Rebirth of the Investigative Judgment, in which I seek to reframe the investigative judgment to be meaningful to the human experience, particularly as it relates to secular mission, is now available on Amazon. You can get it on print. You can get it on print, man. You can hold it in your hands at night and highlight it with your favorite highlighter. Uh, or you can still get the ebook version at my bookstore. Also, um, the books Weird Volution and The Hole in Adventism are also going to be available in print very, very, very soon. This week, actually. Uh, so just watch that space because uh, pretty soon you'll be able to go on the storychurchproject.com, head to the store, and you'll be able to see all the books there available in print um, with the exception of Heartbeat because that's meant to be an ebook only. Anyways, okay. That's it, guys. I'm going to stop there. Take care. God bless you, and I will catch you next week.